Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Bowles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Glayhold Bowles LLP podcast, Building Insight. I'm Patricia Joseph. And I'm Matthew DeBerdino. Our topic today is adjudication and the firm's first experience carrying out an adjudication. So, Patricia, I think the first question is to understand what the purpose of the new adjudication provisions of the Construction Act is. So in previous podcasts, we did go in depth into the general purpose, but just to provide a highlight as we talk about our first adjudication here at the firm, adjudication was instituted for the purpose of being a swift and flexible mechanism of dispute resolution. Um, it has been viewed, at least in other jurisdictions that have that use adjudication, to be a proven straightforward solution to avoid gridlock on construction sites. It's a solution that frees up cash flow and resources while at the same time striking an appropriate balance among competing interests with stakeholders on construction sites. So it's really a flexible way of doing real-time dispute resolution so that projects can continue without any unnecessary lag. Yeah, and I think that uh, outlays what the striking the balance expert review of on uh, Terrio's Construction Lean Act um, that was prepared for the Ministry of the Attorney General and the Ministry of Economic Development in the preparation of Bill 142 really says uh, the two main points being cash flow efficiency and productivity and a swift re- resolution of disputes without wasted profit and time in litigation. Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about the key transition provisions, which incorporated a number of new provisions into the Construction Act, but obviously particularly adjudication. Pursuant to the transition provisions of the new Construction Act, mandatory adjudication only applies to a construction contract or subcontract in Ontario where the procurement process was started and the contract for the improvement was executed on or after October 1st, 2019. Matt, why don't you give us a quick rundown of the types of disputes eligible? The Section 13 construction adjudication provisions of the Construction Act specify categories of disputes that may be referred to adjudication. Uh, However, generally, these categories are rather flexible. But in any case, the dispute must fall within at least one of the categories for adjudication to be available. Uh, The categories are set out in Section 13.5, Sub 1, uh, where it states that a party to a contract may refer to adjudication a dispute with the other party to the contract respecting any one of the following matters. Uh, For example, the valuation of services or materials provided under the contract, uh, any payment under the contract, including change orders, whether approved or not, uh, and also including a proposed change order. So it's clear that these categories are intended to be flexible, and I think many construction disputes will, in fact, be able to fit within one of these categories such that construction adjudication is widely available to uh, help solve any dispute that arises on a 
contract or subcontract in Ontario? Just to provide a bit of context, the first adjudication that we have seen at our firm involved basically two parties. Our client was the contractor, and uh, the matter really came down to non-payment, which again is eligible under Section 13.51. So it was a good opportunity to use adjudication for this type of dispute. And I think it's also important to note a couple of the provisions of the Act related to adjudication availability here as well. Um, Section 15.5 sub 3, an adjudication may not be commenced if the notice of adjudication is given after the date the contract or subcontract is completed, unless the parties agree otherwise. Uh, And Section 13.5 sub 4, states that an adjudication may only address a single matter unless the parties to the adjudication and the adjudicator uh, agree uh, otherwise. One of the first responsibilities that we had in pursuing this adjudication was, first of all, reviewing the procedure, which is pretty straightforward on the ODAC website. And as part of that process, you have to issue a notice of adjudication but you also need to identify a qualified adjudicator. So that was, again, the the first step in pursuing adjudication. Who should we select to decide the matter? So there are many different ways that you could go about that. You could actually go on the ODAC website where they have a registry of qualified adjudicators or word of mouth is another option. In our case, we were able to identify an adjudicator just through our colleagues. And so we put in a request for that individual to oversee our matter. So once we selected an adjudicator, we then had to determine, well, there's, there's two parts to it. You select an adjudicator, of course. You issue your notice of adjudication to the other side. And then at that point, you have to discuss fees. Under section 13.10 sub 3, the parties to the adjudication split payment of the adjudicator. And payment is determined, there's actually standardized uh, rates on the ODAC website. The adjudicator can also suggest the amount or the cost of adjudication. And then that fee is split between the parties. So you do have a pretty good sense of the cost right up front which is really good in terms of predictability and and keeping costs down for clients. So not only does adjudication act as a quick, efficient method of dispute resolution, but there's a lot of cost savings involved. In our case, our adjudication cost about $1,200, and that was split into between the parties. Of course, everyone is responsible for their own legal fees as well. There is an exception to splitting the cost of the adjudicator. Under Section 13.17, if an adjudicator determines that a matter is frivolous, vexatious, or an abuse of power, they can require that one of the parties pays the co- pays all of the costs or some of the costs of the other side. Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the role of the adjudicator? What are some of their powers? What can and can't they do according to the Act? What are some highlights for us? So I think to answer that question, Patricia, I'll just run down uh, a few of the provisions of the Act that are relevant. Uh, Section 13.9 sub 1, 
um, states that an adjudication may only be conducted by an adjudicator listed in the ODAC registry. Um, section point twelve sub four uh, related to conduct states that the adjudicator may conduct the adjudication in the manner that he or she determines appropriate in the circumstances, thus giving the adjudicator the power to design the process. Uh, section 13.12 sub 5 relates to impartiality. Uh, an adjudicator shall conduct an adjudication in an impartial manner. And then section 13.12 powers of the adjudicator. Now, this section really lays out the broad powers that an adjudicator has during an adjudication. Uh, some of the powers that are expressly enumerated by the Act are issuing directions, respecting the conduct of the adjudication, uh, taking the initiative and in ascertaining the relevant facts and law, uh, drawing inferences, uh, obtaining the uh, assistance of third parties, um, and perhaps most importantly, making a determination in the adjudication. Great. So getting back to initiating the process, either party to a contract can initiate an adjudication. There are a few ways that you can do it. I find that the ODAC website is pretty straightforward and, and very user-friendly. You can go on the website and you can actually do all of your, fi your filings and your communications with your adjudicator and the opposing party through the website. However, as required under the Act, yes, you can submit your notice of adjudication through the ODEC website, but you also still have to serve it as you traditionally would any other pleading. So in our case, of course, we, we submitted electronically our pleadings, but then we also separately sent them to the other side as well. Typically, it should take less than 60 days for a matter to be decided if it goes through adjudication. Now, Matt, I understand that you've worked in the industry, why don't you give us a little bit of background of what you did? And do you see the speed of adjudication as having an immediate impact on how disputes are resolved and the ability to move past um, conflict that occurs on the job sites? Tell us a little bit about the immediate impact that adjudication can play. Yeah, so I have some experience working in construction project management um, and from what I can see, the provisions of the uh, Construction Act related to adjudication allow for a quick turnaround time on the resolution of a construction dispute. Now, under the Act, the longest time that it will take for uh, to resolve a dispute from it being raised all the way to um, receiving a determination from an adjudicator is approximately 60 days. Now, on smaller projects, that may not be effective. However, most of the larger projects that I've worked on um, certainly have been a year, two years, three years long. And I think that, you know, spending 60 days to resolve a dispute that could flower into, an, into a million dollar problem or half a million dollar problem at the end of the project, I think is definitely worth it. So I think that the uh, quick turnaround time um, will make construction adjudication a really important tool that a project manager can have in his project management toolbox um, to effectively mitigate uh, risk of loss on a large construction project. Although the maximum amount of time for an adjudication is about 60 days, in my experience, it went much quicker than that. For our matter, pleadings took about two weeks. Like we were on a very tight deadline where 
our full claim was submitted, and then a week later, the respondent had to submit their materials. Three days from then, our one-page reply was due. Section 13.13 sub 1 requires that an adjudicator make a determination no later than 30 days after receiving all the documents. In our case, we received a determination in less than two weeks. So as you can see, the efficiency of the process is really one of the highlights of using adjudication if you have an eligible matter. Patricia, what happens if you fail to comply with the procedural timelines in the act? Do you have to restart the process of the adjudication with a new notice? It's a good question, Matt. Uh, I think I think it's important to keep in mind that you know adjudication is supposed to be, especially that well, the powers of the, of the adjudicator are pretty flexible. The idea is to move things forward. Like you don't want to be bogged down by too much procedure per se. You want things to move forward. So what I would suggest is go to the adjudicator. Like in our case, we had some scheduling issues where um, this was really related to some technical technical difficulties that we had in not being able to receive notifications through the ODAC website. Um, but we just went to the adjudicator and said, hey, this is this is making it difficult for us to uh, abide by the procedural timelines for various reasons. And we could work directly with the adjudicator to develop a new timeline that worked for both parties and we were able to move forward. So I would say the recommended course of action would be, of course, to speak with the adjudicator, speak with the opposing party and see if you can come to some sort of understanding about how to move this forward. Yeah, I think that's the right answer, especially in the light of the broad powers of the adjudicator. Uh, the only thing I would add is that whatever you do, you have to be sure that you're going to avoid the possibility of an application for judicial review. I flag especially 13.18 sub 5.5, where that a setting aside of the adjudicator's determination can be made where the procedures followed in the adjudication did not accord with the procedures to which the adjudication was subject under the part and the failure to accord prejudice the applicant's right to a fair adjudication. So I think what that is saying is that when you are going to stray off the path that the adjudicator set, you have to make sure that it's not going to prejudice the other party. Of course, agreed, which is which is why, again, I, I do think it's important to communicate, communicate with the opposing side, communicate with the adjudicator to see if some sort of resolution can be can be met without having to start the process all over again, just because there was some sort of mishap or someone missed a deadline or something of that nature. So, um, again, we we want to remember, I think, the core purpose of adjudication. It isn't so that everyone adheres to a very legalistic approach but so that the matter gets resolved and then we can move projects forward because again, some of these matters may actually have brought a project to a standstill. And, and the, again, the whole idea is to, is to keep moving the projects forward. In terms of the speed of adjudication, the other benefit is once you do receive a determination, and again, we received ours relatively quickly within two weeks, the amount payable must be paid within 10 days. So again, another incentive for using the adjudication process because money can flow much more quickly than it would going through a regular lien proceeding. The other piece is that the determination is binding on both parties. 
it is an interim order, but it is an order nonetheless that can be enforced by the courts. Unless, of course, it is overturned by the court or an arbitrator or through a written agreement amongst the parties. The other piece here is that if a party is unhappy with a determination, they must seek leave by the division, by the divisional court for judicial review. But an application for judicial review does not operate as a stay on the determination unless otherwise ordered by the divisional court. Patricia, so I think a question that our listeners may want to have answered is, okay, we go to uh, an adjudication, we get a favorable determination, but the other side fails to pay. What do we do next? How do we get that determination enforced? First, Matt, I would say that even if it's clear that the opposing party will pay and they will abide by the adjudicator's determination, it is still good practice to have the determination filed with the court. In our case, we were successful in our adjudication. And so there's a series of steps that you must follow in order to ensure that it's recognized by the courts. And in the worst case scenario where you're not where the opposing party doesn't pay as required by the adjudicator, then you have alternative means of enforcing the determination. What you do is, well, first of all, you receive the determination from the adjudicator, but Subsequently, a few days later, you'll receive a certified copy of the determination, which will be posted to the ODAC website if you choose to use the ODAC website. And again, using the ODAC website is optional. You can adjudicate just by submitting pleadings to the other side and not using the website at all. But since we use the, since we went through the ODAC website with filing our, all of our pleadings and our communicate and um, uh, engaging in communications with the adjudicator and the opposing side, our, our certified copy of the determination was posted on the on the website. So we essentially printed it out and then we filed the certified copy along with two additional copy at the civil intake office. The court will return a stamped certified copy of the determination. Within 10 days of filing the determination with the court, you must give notice to the opposing side that the determination was filed. If payment is not made within 10 days and also assuming that the opposing party has not filed an application for judicial review where they have been granted a stay by the divisional court, if that has not happened, then you can move forward with enforcing the determination using your typical enforcement provisions within the rules of civil procedure. According to Section 13.20 sub 1, when the determination is filed with the court, it's enforceable as a court order. So what that means is you can enforce it under Rule 60 of the Ontario Rules of Civil Procedure. So, for example, a writ of seizure and a sale per Rule 60.07 could be requested from the court. This provides a very strong incentive to file the determination once you receive the certified copy. If payment is not made within 10 days, Section 13.19 sub 3 states that interest begins to accrue on the amount that is not paid subsequent to that 10th day. I think another provision uh, regarding enforcement that is important or will be important to 
um, owners, contractors, and subcontractors alike is Section 13.19 sub 5. Now, this provision is related to enforcement through suspension of work, you know, quote unquote, walking off the job. Um, if an amount payable to the contractor or subcontractor that was obtained through a determination of an adjudicator uh, is not paid, then the unpaid contractor or subcontractor can effectively walk off the project, likely with uh, notice given to the owner. Um, and they may suspend work on the contract or subcontract until the party owing pays the following amounts, um, the amount required to be paid under the termination, any interest that's accrued under uh, the interest provision, um, and any reasonable costs incurred by the contractor or subcontractor as a result of the ex- suspension of work. So effectively what this allows for is the contractor subcontractor who's unpaid to walk away from the project temporarily and then upon return claim for effectively remobilization charges. And I think this has far reaching consequences on a project. And I think it really underlines the purpose of the act, which is to pay now and argue later. So if an owner gets a determination made against them, it's effectively in their best interest to pay now and argue later as opposed to seeing their contractors and subcontractors walk off the project and then even potentially being liable for remobilization costs. So I think that this provision is an effective provision that will allow the construction adjudication provisions of the act to operate as they are intended. So, Patricia, given that we discussed that the adjudicator has the power to design the adjudication process in an ad hoc manner for that specific dispute, what does the typical adjudication process look like? It really depends. I mean, what's useful about the ODAC website is there are actually pre-designed adjudication processes that you can choose from. So when we filed our notice of adjudication, one of the requirements is that you suggest a type of process on the website and the adjudicator can chime in and say, hey, you know, maybe you consider you should consider this process depending on the nature of your claim, how complex it is. So there are various uh, pre-designed processes. There are four that are listed on the website. Most of them are in writing only, but one of the pre-designed processes, process number four, actually allows for oral submissions. But again, those would only be in far more complex matters that may require it to be done orally or or in person. Beyond that, there's also the option to have a bespoke sort of process where all three parties, so so the, the claimant, the respondent, and the adjudicator can come together and develop something totally new. But what, again, what makes adjudication very straightforward is that the the types of processes are very easy to just choose from. You don't, there isn't a lot of guessing work involved. Our adjudication was based on the pre-designed adjudication process number two, where as the claimant, we were limited to a total of five pages. Four pages are effectively the equivalent of your statement of claim, and then you get a one-page reply. The opposing side or the respondent also got 
five pages with no reply. And that does not include uh, any invoices or the contract, which you can attach as an appendices. Initially, we suggested the pre-designed adjudication process number one, and that is very no frills. So that's where you're limited to two pages per party. And to be honest with you, I'm glad that the adjudicator came back and said, no, I think you should use adjudication process number two, because I, although the issue seemed very straightforward, once you get into the details, you realize maybe you need a little bit more uh, leeway to communicate the issues uh, that you have uh, within your within your dispute. So one of the things that I would suggest is think carefully about the nature of the dispute, how complex it is, and if if you need a little bit more to explain or if or whether or not it should be in writing at all you may you may determine that you know this really should be an oral hearing and then you want to go for the pre-designed adjudication process that's really a decision that you should that you should make um, in reviewing the case with your client but again the adjudicator has the ultimate decision in saying has has the ultimate power in deciding which process is most appropriate depending on the nature of the of the dispute. Patricia, I think a question that some of our listeners may have that have been through, you know, a lien claim before or some sort of litigation related to construction is okay, construction adjudication is now available. Does that preclude me filing a claim for lien? Does that preclude contemporaneous litigation or arbitration? Or can these things happen at the same time? It's a good question. Uh, the act does not preclude the preservation or perfection of a lien or the commencement of, of an action or arbitration during the adjudication process. So there is contemporaneous proceedings where you where we have an adjudication happening at the same time. In our case, we've been preserving and working toward perfecting our lien. So no, you're not precluded from doing both. The prudent thing would always be, of course, to preserve and to perfect. I would say that where you obtain a result, an adjudication determination, good practice, of course, is to file that determination with the court. But if you at that point would like to halt your lien action, ensure that some sort of release is signed or or you have an agreement from the other side, to bring an end to those lien proceedings, ideally without costs, upon payment of the amount specified in the adjudication determination. Otherwise, keeping in mind, under Rule 23.05 sub 1, a motion could be made by the opposing party to request their costs to the lien claim if you decide that you no longer want to go through with the proceedings because you've already achieved a successful determination through the adjudication. Yeah, and I think that's the right answer to that question. Um, additionally, I would just flag the party who's looking to do a contemporaneous action, be it a lien or otherwise, still must be sure to comply with the two-year general limitation period or any other limitation period under the Limitations Act um, as well as the lien preservation, perfection, and setting down to trial periods that are specified in the Construction Act. And I think what you said really highlights Section 13.15 sub 2, that subject to Section 13.18, 
nothing in this part restricts the authority of a court or an arbitrator acting under the Arbitration Act 91 to consider the merits of a matter determined by an adjudicator. As well as Section 13.5 sub 5, which states that a party may refer a matter to adjudication under this part, even if the matter is the subject of a court action or of an arbitration under the Arbitration Act 1991, unless the action or arbitration has been finally determined. So, Matt, our firm has completed its first adjudication. Knowing what you know about the process, if I were to come to you as a sophisticated contractor with a a professional staff, um, and in light of everything that, you know, we've said about adjudication, that it's pretty fast, it's, you know, it's an efficient way of resolving disputes, um, it's relatively informal compared to your typical lien proceedings, would you recommend that a sophisticated contractor retain a lawyer for adjudication or is just something that you would suggest that they would do on their own? What are the benefits in engaging a lawyer for adjudication as opposed to a contractor or some other stakeholder going through adjudication independently? Yeah, and I think that's a great question that a lot of our listeners will want answered. Um, certainly, a lot of our listeners will be sophisticated contractors that employ a professional staff, especially, you know, larger contractors that have engineers, experienced project managers, architects, etc. Do they need to expend the, the cost to retain a lawyer to effectively um, carry out an adjudication? And my answer would be yes. Um, I think there are certain aspects of adjudication where retaining a lawyer can be very benef- beneficial. Some of the benefits of retaining a lawyer to carry out an adjudication on your behalf as, as a contractor or as a owner or a subcontractor um, would be that you would benefit from the experience and skill that lawyers generally have with persuasive writing and advocacy on your behalf. You know, where there is friction on a project and there's a contentious dispute that arises, I think it's beneficial to both parties to have lawyers in their corner who are experienced uh, in, in communicating in a professional manner during you know, a contentious dispute. Bringing the dispute outside of the headspace of the parties, I think, is advantageous. Uh, lawyers generally have knowledge uh, of the underlying legal merits of the dispute and will be able to evaluate uh, the strengths and weak weaknesses of, you know, your side of the dispute based on the underlying law. And I think that retaining a lawyer will especially prove to be advantageous following the determination. What are the next steps? Did we comply with the procedures? Is there the opportunity to apply for a judicial review um, and, and following up with the determination. I think that retaining a lawyer to conduct your adjudication will prove to be especially advantageous for those follow-up steps. I think, I think those are great points, Matt. And, and not to mention that, yes, you know, adjudication is more informal, but it's still important to have someone on your team, a lawyer, uh, who has the experience and, and skills dealing with, you know, persuasive writing and advocacy. Because as we know, 
part of the efficiency of, of, of adjudication is that most of it is just written advocacy. You're submitting your pleadings, uh, both parties are, and the adjudicator is, is reviewing it. So you want someone who's comfortable within that realm, who's familiar, who's experienced, and typically, you know, with a lawyer, you're, you're getting the best opportunity that you have to present your case in a favorable, in a favorable light. The other point I would add is, is, um, you're absolutely right that, you know, lawyers can help provide that direction, even if you're able to get through the adjudication independent of, of a lawyer. What happens next? Of course, there's always a possibility that you may not be successful in the adjudication. And in some circumstances, the payment could be substantial. So because of the costs that are on the line, potentially, you may want a lawyer who's with you from the beginning of the process to increase the likelihood based on their experience and their advocacy expertise to put you in the best position to be successful. And then, of course, Judicial review is also is also an option if one of the parties is not satisfied with the determination. So, Matt, do you have any closing thoughts for the audience based on the background that we've given on adjudication, how it became incorporated into the act, the role of the adjudicator, the various processes that are available to parties if they decide to pursue dispute resolution through adjudication? What are other comments or important points that we should highlight for our listeners? So I think that the construction adjudication provisions of the Construction Act are going to prove to be an effective way in which construction disputes will be resolved on an interim basis. Uh, in my experience, if you have a large dispute, everyone seems to flag it on the project and then track it uh, throughout the course of the project and then argue at the end about the value, about who's liable. I think that instead of arguing at the end, the adjudication provisions allow you to argue now. And, you know, that will really ensure that a contractor who obtains a favorable determination can maintain his cash flow on the project. And additionally, it will prevent um, a contractor from refuting his obligations under a contract and walking off the job or breaching his contract in that manner, which would be detrimental to both the owner and the contractor. So I think that allowing parties to resolve their disputes during the project instead of at the end is an effective way to ensure that the contractor maintains his cash flow and an owner maintains his schedule. So Matt, with that in mind, wouldn't wouldn't the other benefit, I suppose, be that, you know, sometimes what ends up happening at the end of a project is you you have all these issues that come up, you have a ton of disputes, and then you move on to these massive arbitrations. Do you think that there's room here for adjudication to really put a limit on the complexity and just the sheer size of uh, a dispute after the fact, after the project is over? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that one of the characteristics of construction adjudication is that, you know, on these big projects where you have a big dispute at the end of the project, often you'll see the dispute being broken into categories or the common buzzword used as buckets of issues that kind of get aggregated into one large dispute. I think that if you have the 
interim construction adjudication working as it should, a lot of those buckets that get aggregated into that large dispute at the end will be determined throughout the life of the project. Um, and, you know, parties can either move on from that determination or litigate or arbitrate those ind- individual issues um, as they see fit, as opposed to having them aggregated into one large claim at the end and, you know, essentially seeing legitimate claims getting struck or paid um, simply because they are part of a larger issue. So I think that that's an important characteristic of adjudication and I think will prove to be an effective way to mitigate the size of arbitrations or litigation or dispute resolutions that often follow large construction projects. Really good point. And I think I think the only way that we get there is if contractors, subcontractors and other parties utilize adjudication. They have to be aware of it. And hopefully it's it's discussions like these that can get the word out that, hey, this is an option. It's a fantastic option in our view, based on our experience. But we need to use it in order for it to have the long term impact that we hope that it would have on helping projects to move forward at a much quicker pace. If you're a member of a construction organization, a municipality, a large developer, even a smaller owner, we would recommend that you look into adjudication. Go on the ODAC website, learn how the process works and educate yourself, educate your team on the availability of construction adjudication as a worthwhile alternative to resolving construction disputes. Thank you for listening to the Glayholt Bowles LLP Building Insight Podcast. For more information, you can visit our website at glayholt.com. That's G-L-A-H-O-L-T.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.